Women's Health Outreach is a student-run, registered charity based on the campus of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Our goal is to facilitate needs-based peer-to-peer health discussions on a local, national, and international scale. This podcast is for those who are interested in health, global health, global development, ethical engagement, and education. Join us and our special guests bi-weekly as we chat about discussions surrounding all these topics and more. We would like to thank the CFRC 101.9 and the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences for this collaboration. Additionally, we'd like to acknowledge that Queen's University is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We're so grateful to be able to live, learn, and work on these lands. Hey everyone, it's your host Kate Miller, and today's episode is the first of a two-part mini-series on mental health. I think it's so important that we continue to lean into these raw and sometimes difficult conversations about mental health and mental illness. By engaging in these discussions, we work towards destigmatizing mental health, and we open the floor for others to share their journey and seek support from those around them. As a warning, today's episode covers sensitive topics, including suicide. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, call the Suicide Prevention Service at one 833 for 24-7 support, or text 456-45 between 4 p.m. and 12 a.m. Eastern Time. You're not alone. For our physical health, it's imperative that we continue to follow public health guidelines and socially distance, which can be extremely isolating. Let us gently remind ourselves that although we are physically apart, we're not alone. We're worthy and we're so loved. Today, we're joined by very special and knowledgeable guests. Teresa Strathoff is an occupational therapist with 30 years of experience working in the field of mental health. She is the co-author of the book, Coping Strategies to Promote Occupational Engagement and Recovery, a program manual to provide training in resilience, recovery, and health routines. She has authored articles and presented at national and international conferences on coping strategy training, suicide safety planning, and adult education. Teresa introduces us to the role of occupational therapy in the field of mental health. Further, we discuss coping strategies for managing our mental health, and Teresa shares several tangible tips for supporting our own mental health, as well as the mental health of our loved ones. Finally, we touch on the topic of suicide and suicide safety planning. So, Put in your earbuds, go for a walk, do some meal prep, or settle into a cozy chair. Take a deep breath, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I guess just to get us started, um, do you mind telling our listeners what an occupational therapist is um, and what your role would be in a mental health setting? Sure. Sure. So an occupational therapist is there to help people do the occupations that they need and want to do in their day. And by occupations, we mean um, things that they do for their self-care, productive things, or also leisure things. So for self-care, examples could be doing your grooming, showering, eating, but it's also managing in the community so that you can do your shopping and banking or driving. For productive occupations, we're looking more at paid or unpaid work or volunteer work and school. Uh, And then for leisure, we look at uh, those fun things. So your social activities, creative activities or physical interests. 
And when we look at um, helping people with their occupations, we have to do an assessment of the individual. So we would see what their physical, uh, intellectual, emotional, and social abilities are. And then also the environment that they're expected to do those occupations in. So whether they're at home or um, uh, in their workplace or in their school, these are the places that we need to know where they're expected to do the things they want to do. When we hear the word occupation, we think of um, just like at work, right? So the protective um, paid work. But I think you did a really nice job of breaking down um, that an occupational therapist actually really looks at all the different scopes of one's life. And that includes, I guess, both productive and um, non-productive time. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, because of what we look at in terms of occupations, that means that we work in all kinds of different settings and with people who have physical or mental health challenges. And so our role in, in mental health, um, I like to break it down into four main roles. So um, we want to look at maximizing an individual's function. And whenever there's mental health challenges, uh, there's, there can be really a lot of uh, things that will impact a person's function. So for example, some of the reasons could be distressing emotions. So anger or depression or anxiety can interfere with how they function. Yeah. Or they could have changes in their thinking. So they might have a lot of negative self-talk. Um, they might be psychotic. Uh, or they could have a lot of trouble concentrating um, and, you know, following instructions for what they're supposed to be doing. Sometimes it's more physical, like their energy is really low, or mm. you can have the opposite where somebody has too much energy and that interferes with how they function. Right. And also uh, there's some behaviors that can really interfere with functioning whenever you have mental health challenges, like isolating from others or um, being so stressed to do things that you, you avoid the tasks by maybe staying in bed for long periods in the day, or maybe gaming for extended periods, and then you're not getting other things done. Right. So that's, that's what some of the issues or challenges are with, with the occupations with mental health. And so then when we look at how we uh, intervene, we have four main roles. So the first thing that, um, you want to look at is, is a person activated? So if they're not getting out of bed, you're going to start um, helping them to do some, some of their basic self-care things. So getting up and showering and making sure that they're feeding themselves. Um, because isolation is such a big problem, you want to help them be socializing again with other people and to have small successes in their day. So you set up some goals so that they have that sense of achievement. So that's our first role is helping people get activated again. Mm. The next thing that we look at would be more of a functional assessment. So in psychiatry or in mental health, often people are very mobile, but where the challenges come in are with um, uh, often their cognition. So they'll have trouble reasoning and problem solving. Um, it'll be hard to be organized. And so we want to assess how they do keeping in mind that this is always related to uh, the environment that they have to function in. So somebody who's going to school or who's living independently at home is gonna to have to have a higher level of functioning than somebody who's maybe living in a group home or living with their parents where meals 
and cleaning help is provided. Right. So, so we have to really look at that. And um, once we have a sense of how they're functioning, we can do interventions to help with that. The next main role that we have is coping strategy training. So I'm going to expand on this in a, in a moment, but basically it's learning and using the strategies that help us to engage in those occupations. So with depression, uh, you might still physically be able to shower. It's not like, you know, you've, you're paraplegic. You can probably still get into that shower, but the problem becomes that ability to motivate yourself or just, you know, feeling so anxious that you're paralyzed from doing a lot of activities. So, um, we want to teach them some strategies of how they can get started on activities or, or plow through and persevere when things get tough. And the strategies is what is really helping us follow through. So if a person's having trouble being motivated for a shower, a strategy could be to set that up as a regular routine so that it becomes more of a habit for them. And then the final role that we look at is to help people plan out their routines when they're living in the community. So you might think about, you know, how are you going to continue to comply with your medication? Are you going to need to set alarms, for example, or use a pill box to help you remember to take, take those medications? Or um, what could be a routine that will maximize your function? So if you're low energy, then you might want to pace higher demand activities with lower ones and include rest breaks, breaks and social breaks in the day. And then the other thing that we look at then with respect to managing routines in the community is those supports that are out there. So peer supports, um, interesting activities that, that people might be able to join in to uh, help them feel more connected in their community. So those wow. are basically our four roles. We do activation, assess function, coping strategy training, and then help people with their routines in the community. Yeah, that's really neat. And I think too, when we think of someone who is maybe struggling with mental health or mental illness, we often think, oh, maybe they need to go speak with a psychologist or a psychiatrist or some medication, um, which are both definitely um, can be very important strategies, but it's definitely interesting to look at just like different approaches or the idea that it's um, like how it takes a whole team and that an occupational therapist um, is also an important part of that healthcare team. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, people will often come into hospital and say, well, I want to feel better, but um, it's really much more helpful if you figure out what is it that they want to be able to do if they felt better, because feeling better is such a hard thing to measure for them. And so to see success quickly is very hard, but if you, if you bring it back to, you know, you might not feel better right away, but what is it that you want to do? And let's find a way that you can do it. That can really help people and bring some of that control and power, power back to them. Right. And I remember you even just mentioned that um, you help like clients think of like little successes throughout the day as well. And so it probably can be overwhelming to think that, oh, I want to go back to exactly what my life was like a year ago when I was super social and um, did all these things, but I agree that breaking it down and just thinking, okay, well this week I'm going to work on, um, taking a shower every other day, um, into those smaller goals and successes. 
Yeah, and it's really nice to hear people when they recognize that and they realize, you know, that um, that a shower, that is a big accomplishment for them because you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, maybe look at it the same way if somebody broke their leg and they were able to, you know, manage to get into the tub and give themselves a bath. You can, you can picture how difficult that would be, but it's yeah. harder to see that with mental health. Just sometimes it's really hard to imagine that it's so tough to just even get out of your bed. So when they do do those things, like take a shower or eat some of their food at a meal, it really is a big success. For sure. And again, like you use that analogy of, oh, well, if the person had like a physical injury and often I think that's um, easier for people to understand. And maybe it's just because we can see it like, oh, well, you have a cast on your arm. Of course, you can't do those tasks that you normally do. Um, Whereas mental health can be a bit harder to explain to people. Um, But I do feel that we're moving in the direction where um, mental health is less taboo now. And that overall, I think people do have a bit of a better awareness of mental health. Um, And so it's awesome being able to continue these important conversations. I agree. And, you know, the pandemic has really brought that to the forefront with um, a lot more in the news about people's mental health and the importance of routine and setting small goals for yourself. So uh, the conversations are definitely out there. But yeah, so it can still be very hard for people who are struggling to open up to others and talk about it. For sure. Do you mind elaborating on the idea of a routine and why you feel um, that it's important for people to continue um, with routines and especially for their mental health? Sure. So um, maybe I'll I'll do that in the context of all coping strategies. Yeah, for sure. There's quite a few coping strategies out there and it's pretty hard to figure out, you know, what is it specifically that I need to be able to do better in order to cope with my day? So I find it's very helpful if I break it down for people by looking at four categories of coping, because if we look at all your strategies, they would probably fall under one of those four categories. And if you just look at four categories, it makes it a lot more um, understandable about where to focus your attention. Yeah. So the first category is really about health and wellness. It's kind of an, uh, you know, a foundation for real physical and mental health. So most of us will know that sure we've got to sleep and we've got to eat and uh, exercise and socialize in order to be able to function. But what's really important with that health and wellness, especially with mental health, is to have routines because Mm -hmm. it's the routines that um, cut down on some of the change and the stress in your day. The more change we face, the higher our stress level is. So if you want to reduce your stress, you need to reduce some of the changes. And uh, one way to do that is to do a routine. So routines for those health things like um, eating around the same time every day or going to bed around the same time and getting up around the same time, taking your medications the same time, all of those things, um, first of all, take some of the guesswork out of your body trying to figure out what it's supposed to be doing at that time of day. But it also, um, you know, it just really once you get into a routine, it cuts down a lot of that effort of having to think about, well, when am I going to eat? Because you know that your set time is for that. 
uh, or contemplating, should I get up now or I'll just sleep for another three hours and the next thing you know, you know, it's the middle of the afternoon. So having that routine will cut down on a lot of the stress, put predictability in your day and it will make things become much more of a habit for you. And once you've established a habit, it's easier to keep that going. Yeah. Especially right now during the pandemic, when there is so much uncertainty and so much change, I think that really highlights the importance of maintaining a routine. Um, so even though we're, most of us would be at home right now, I think that really, again, just highlights the importance of, like you said, trying to still wake up at the same time and go to bed at the same time. And maybe, you know, if you like work out every in the mornings and all those kind of things, I assume would be helpful for someone's mental health. Exactly. And if you, if you start with that as one of your, you know, foundation categories, so there's four altogether, but when people come into hospital, oftentimes those routines have really gone out the window. So that's often where we're starting is trying to get people back into those routines because, um, you know yourself, if you haven't eaten or you're not sleeping well, the emotions are raw. It's harder to think. It's harder to problem solve. So if you get that back on track, it can really make um, other stuff go a little bit easier. For sure. So that's the first category. And then the second category for coping would be looking at how to change your situation. And you do that through setting goals or communicating to other people what you need or refusing requests that you don't want to do, and also by managing your time. So I'll give you an example of a, a student that I worked with, and she came into hospital, but she was really quite distressed because she had to contact her school that she would um, she'd be in hospital for a little while. And this was really stressing her out about how to do that. So what I did is I taught her a communication script. So just a four-step process of how to communicate your needs to other people. And then she took the script and put in her own words for what she could say to the university. And after she wrote that out, she felt much more confident in contacting them and uh, went on to do that on her own and was really pleasantly surprised about how supportive they were. So that's an example of she couldn't change the situation that she was in hospital and that she was sick, but what she, where she could get some of the control back in her situation was to learn the assertive skills so that she could contact the university. Yeah. And I like how you also mentioned that she was pleasantly surprised by the university's um, response. I feel like often um, we're so worried, oh, are they going to judge me or they're not going to believe me or I feel so lame um, but often when we just tell someone the truth and are able to open up or even just explain that, you know what, right now, like I'm struggling and I just need a little bit of extra time, um, to hand in this assignment. Often people are more understanding than you'd expect. Exactly. And if I had, you know, a dollar for every time I heard somebody say that, that they didn't think other people would understand, um, and I encourage them, you know what, you're not going to know till you try it out. And they'll come back and say it went so much better than they thought. Uh, or they'll, you know, they'll tell somebody and they'll hear from that person that they also experienced uh, mental health challenges, or they knew somebody that experienced mental health challenges, and they're willing to help. 
it's really uh, quite a relief for people whenever they reach out and talk to others. For sure. Because it can feel like you mentioned, like isolating almost just being alone with your thoughts. Um, And it's easy to feel like you're the only one going through the situation. And so I feel like it can be very reassuring in a way to open up to others um, because it reminds you that um, lots of people and not to undermine your own situation, but it just reminds you that you're not alone and that it's okay. And that people often um, will encounter mental health problems at different points in their lives. Um, But almost seeing other people, it kind of reminds you that there's a light at the end of the tunnel as well. Yeah, and there's another really important part of that, um, because one of the other categories of coping is to be able to change your attitude. So especially with depression, um, what can happen with your thinking is that you tend to see more the negatives around you. So it's just that your mind goes that way to look at what are all those threats around you. And the perspective is skewed. So um, your thoughts are probably more negative than they normally would be if you were feeling well. Mm. And sometimes they can even get distorted. Yeah. You might hear a lot of like all or nothing thinking, like I'll never be able to do this or um, people are going to hate me or everybody's going to be so disappointed in me. So that kind of thinking going on in your own head, it's hard to believe that there's any other way of looking at the situation. And when you talk to somebody else, a few things happen. So first of all, um, you might get that reassurance that they've maybe had some firsthand experience with that themselves. Uh, Or they might be able to be that voice of reason and help you problem solve when you're too distressed to do that. And it gives another perspective on the situation. So if you're alone, ruminating on negative thoughts, you're not gonna be able to put a lot of other perspectives on the situation. But if you talk to somebody else who's not feeling as distressed, they're gonna be able to say, well, have you thought about looking at this way? Or or how else can we look at this? Or is this always true that you you don't succeed at anything? So it's really a good way to challenge some of that negative thinking. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, I feel like often when we're not feeling well, or maybe we're feeling depressed, it's really easy to spiral and get in your own head. And like you mentioned, a lot of that all or nothing thinking, we feel like I'm the worst, or I'm never going to be able to do this. And I'm never going to be able to succeed. Um, So I agree that almost having like a fresh perspective, and someone who's able to um, share maybe a bit more of rational thinking. of course, in like a um, kind manner, but I can imagine that'd be really helpful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so those are the first three categories we talked about. So the importance of um, health and wellness routines, the importance of being able to change your situation, uh, changing your attitude. So we know that how you think is going to impact how you feel. And the more Uh, negative your thoughts are, the the higher the intensity of those distressing emotions. So the final category then for coping is to know some ways to change your body's response to stress. So um, this is when you know, you've got that racing heart, and it's um, uh, your mind is going really quick. uh, And it's hard to um, you know, physically, you feel worked up and that adrenaline rush. 
maybe you've had that experience, Kate, I don't know. I, I've, I remember <laughs> having the experience when I was in university about going into an exam and being so stressed that my mind was racing or oh, yeah. even worse, it goes blank. Yeah. And so, um, so if you have some strategies like breathing exercises or relaxation techniques to slow down your heart rate, it's going to help to calm your body and then clear your mind so that you can think again. Mm -hmm. And an example of a really simple technique is something called box breathing, where you breathe in for a count of four, you hold for a count of four, then you breathe out for a count of four and hold for a count of four. So mm -hmm. it's pretty straightforward. But if you picture a box in your mind and you go through the, those, those steps, what it does is it focuses your mind on the breathing and not on the negative thinking. Right. Uh, so that helps your brain and body to get into a bit more of a relaxed mode. It's not an yeah. instant cure. Once your adrenaline is pumping, it, it doesn't turn off automatically. So it takes a little bit of work. But if you can do that, um, it'll slow things down. And then, you know, there's better blood flow. So then you will be able to reason because the blood's no longer just going to the muscles to get you out of that situation. It's going more to the brain so that you can figure figure out your next step. Yeah, exactly. So more oxygen, like going to your brain so you can think clear as well. Exactly. And yeah. then the other important part about um, uh, that category of changing your body's response is actually being aware of those early and exhaustion symptoms of stress. So if there's a lot going on, you know, like exam time, for example, uh, maybe you've got a job, you're dealing with exams, you're probably just trying to survive it. And you might be getting some of those symptoms of stress, but you're just soldiering on, you're just trying, you just keep going without really paying attention to them and looking at how you need to make change. So I do a lot of teaching around what are a person's early warnings and exhaustion signs of stress. And it can be different for everybody. So it's good to really personalize this. Now, how do you figure out what is an early sign versus an exhaustion sign? Well, that's where my occupational therapy lens comes in. And <laughs> I relate it back to function. So if you're getting some symptoms, like, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit hard to fall asleep at night, or maybe you're worrying a little bit more than usual. Uh, but you're still for the most part functioning in your day, then you know, you can do some things like talk to a friend, maybe take a little break for an afternoon. Um, you know, maybe I don't know, do something fun, or, or go for a run or something like that to help with some of that stress buildup. But if your symptoms are so uh, extensive, that it's actually impacting how much you can do in your day. So that you're you're missing out on self care, you're not eating, or it's harder to get out of bed in the morning, or there's, you know, you're having nights where you're not really sleeping very much, then um, that's the key to start looking for maybe more professional help. So it's not really going to go in the right direction. If you keep going at that point, you're going to push on to a burnout phase. So what you want to do is, is recognize if I'm not functioning because of my stress symptoms, it's a good idea to talk to somebody about that and really consider, you know, some professional help, like speaking to your family doctor or getting in touch with a counselor. Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, as a sign, because sometimes I have to remind myself that there is a difference also even just between 
like stress versus anxiety. And like you were talking about examples with high, maybe higher stress times, such as exam period, and that that's natural and everyone will experience some degree of stress um, during a situation such as exams. Um, but then I guess it's drawing that line um, when it's like persistent, would you say? And when it's affecting your activities of daily living, is that how you would kind of, um, when you would suggest seeking professional help? Yeah, I think so. And, and again, this is why it's really nice to figure out for yourself, you know, and maybe you need to do that with somebody else, but when do you really need to pay attention to it? So I often will show people something called a stress burnout curve, where on the one side, uh, the amount of stress that you're under, you're still able to function. But once you tip over to high stress and not doing those things you do in your day, it's kind of a, a slippery slope down. Mm. So the sooner you can recognize that, that, you know, you're not functioning, um, the less of the climb it is back up to the other side. Kind of hard to describe it without the diagram in front, but I hope yeah. I'm giving a good picture. No, I can, I can picture that. Yeah. And I, I tell people, you know, it's always possible to climb back up and some people come in and they're quite burnt out. Um, but I would say, you know, there's not really any specific length of time that makes it an official burnout. I think if you're not functioning for one or two days, that's important to pay attention to. And that's, that's uh, you know, getting into that more danger zone. So if you can recognize it and turn it around on your own or with some help of family, great. But oftentimes people will actually need to get other people involved because so many things start to become difficult when you're not functioning. It's hard to, for example, plan and prepare your meals or it's hard to have the energy to go out and grocery shop or the time to do some of those things. Or you might be so worried that it's hard to organize how to do your next step. So you know, if you're not functioning, even for a day or two, uh, let people know, see where you can get some help and, and get back on track. Yeah, I guess I don't know if you're able to answer this, but let's say you have like a friend or a housemate or family member who you're noticing um, are having trouble functioning um, day by day um, and that they seem to be struggling um, with mental health as a friend or a loved one, is this something you would mention to the person or do you think it's important for the person themselves to recognize um, that they're having a mental health problem? No, I think sometimes it's, it might be hard to recognize it uh, because they might have some of that negative thought going on in their head. So they might just say, I'm just being lazy or I'm being stupid. And mm. that's not really the case. It's not that they're being lazy or stupid. It's that they're having symptoms that are impacting how they can do some of those things in the day. So uh, oftentimes that thinking and that perspective on things will change for people who are under a lot of stress. So if you notice changes in people you're living with or family members, it's really great to open up that conversation. Um, you know, it, it just, again, gives them an, an opportunity to say, oh, well, maybe something isn't quite right here. And maybe I felt a little bit like that, but I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to worry anybody. Mm -hmm. So uh, giving them the opportunity to talk about it can often be quite a relief. Um, right. it, may, it may be that they, you know, they probably have some awareness that something's not right, but they not, might not be as completely uh, cued in 
to it just because they're, you know, they're in survival mode and they're, they're not really able to figure out exactly what's going on. Right. No, that makes sense. And then I guess just on the flip side, um, if you are, um, like you said, having symptoms of a mental health challenge, do you have Mm -hmm. any suggestions for someone, um, how they can open up, uh, to maybe someone they're living with, uh, like a family member or friend and how they can ask for support? Yeah, um, I do. And maybe, Kate, I wonder if it's okay to start to talk a little bit about suicide and suicidality at this point. Yeah. Uh, Because if people are quite distressed and it's starting to impact their function, there can be a risk that they're having those suicidal thoughts. And uh, that's, you know, that's when you're really getting into a danger zone. So if a person isn't functioning, um, but not suicidal, then, you know, there's still that sort of degree of safety that yes, you do want to intervene and get help. But if there's suicidality going on, you really want to be able to catch that. And people often won't be, you know, uh, just bring that up on their own. It's something that that they might be going that might be going through their head, but they may not be talking about. Mm. So if we talk about suicidality, um, it's related to any thoughts, plans or actions um, for self-harm and for suicide. So if a, if a person is, you know, making any suicide threats or attempts, you want to treat that like a medical emergency that requires professional help as soon as possible. So okay. it's, it's always something to take seriously. And we know that a person who's had a past suicide attempt is at a greater risk that they could attempt again. So again, um, it's a hard thing to take on all on your own if somebody's expressing suicide or if you're seeing them do some self-harm behavior. So uh, you can bring up the conversation, but don't be afraid also to ensure that uh, you have some support and that the person who's expressing suicidal thoughts has support. So there's some things that you could look out for. Um, if, If you hear a person say, you know, maybe sometimes they think they'd be better off dead or uh, they're not able to control their worries. Maybe they're, they're starting to turn down invitations to go out, um, isolating more in their room where they're not sleeping. That's a, a good chance to open up some of the conversation that, you know, I've noticed that you're not doing the usual things that you do in the day, or you seem to be stressed out or your mood seems low. Um, can we talk about it? And, it's also really, you know, very helpful to be direct and ask them, are you having any thoughts of hurting yourself or killing yourself? Mm. Let's not beat around the bush um, or, or maybe, you know, insinuate. It's really important to be clear here with, are you having those thoughts? Um, or do you ever think that life isn't worth living? So those kinds of questions, they sound like they're pretty straightforward and they are. Yeah. Because you, you don't want to um, leave this up to some guesswork. Right. Because I think a, I've heard before that a common misconception is that if you were to ask someone, um, like you said, are you having thoughts of killing yourself, that you're going to plant the seed in their mind. Exactly. I, right. Yeah. That, that is a misconception. Okay. Yeah. Because, um, because you know, if the thoughts are there, uh, you're not going to put them there by bringing it up. And Oftentimes, if people are asked about it, there's a there's a sense of relief because mm-hmm. it opens up the opportunity to talk about what's going on. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then I think you also asked me then what would be some, some ideas of how to help that person get support. And there is, there are some really good options out there. So uh, you could offer to uh, help them, you know, find the name for their family doctor, or uh, they could call the crisis line. Um, there's always emergency. You can always go into emergency and you'll be seen by a psychiatrist or a doctor. It doesn't mean that you're admitted to hospital, but it's a really good chance to figure out what's going on and what might be some interventions to help. So maybe there's medication that might help, or maybe there's some programs or, or community supports that could help. Or sometimes it, it may mean an admission to hospital so that you have a chance to get back on track. So, so helping the person to, to reach out and make some of those contacts uh, can be really uh, a great way to, uh, to intervene. For sure. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking about, um, suicide and some of the warning signs. Cause I feel that this topic especially, um, can be taboo. I know mental health in general can be, but especially suicide. Um, but it's definitely an important conversation to have. Um, and I think it's reassuring to people know, to know that, um, it's okay to ask someone that you think might be having suicidal thoughts, um, that it's okay to ask someone if they are indeed having those thoughts. And like you said, that you don't need to beat around the bush and that it's important to be straightforward. Yeah. And I'll give you an idea of, of what a health professional might do, or, you know, be more specific. What I do as an occupational therapist, if I'm working with somebody who's, who's experienced suicidality, because remember in that, in that person's mind, they might really believe there's nothing that can help them at that point or that, you know, they right. feel so awful. They don't even want to bother trying to get help. But um, what I try and talk to them about is, is normalizing a little bit. Like, um, you know, for, so if they come in and they're, they're having a lot of those troubles with uh, eating, they're not sleeping well, we'll start with getting that stuff back on track. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they're, they are doing okay. And there's just been some horrible, stressful situation that they're facing or a loss. And so they're coming in and that's the thing that's really triggering them. So I treat, uh, I treat, once we go through different coping strategies and, you know, I look if there's any skill deficits there and do some training, then I, I set up a safety plan with them. So a suicide safety plan, I tell them is like any other type of emergency plan. So for example, if you had to deal with a fire, um, you'd have to know what are the warning signs that there actually is a fire. So you'd have to know, you know, smoke, heat, uh, then you'd need to know what steps you can do to keep yourself safe and who else you're going to call in to help with the situation. So you're going to call 911 and get the firefighters in. And then the other thing you need to know about dealing with an emergency like a fire is what are those things that you do over time to make yourself as prepared as possible if that emergency ever shows up? Mm. So like you keep the batteries in your smoke detector um, uh, renewed or um, what's another thing you might do? Oh, I'm sure at university, you probably have fire drills in the residences. So, so those things are all uh, important concepts to consider whenever you're dealing with an emergency. Now, most of us have how to deal with a fire drilled into our head from a very young age. But yeah. That's not the case with suicidal thinking. Right. So, so I, I uh, will invite them to write a safety plan with me and we will map out 
uh, first of all, what's the what's some of the reasons that they want to live? What gives them meaning and purpose? Mm. What are those occupations in their day that they want to do or that they strive to do in their future? And then we move on and look at specifically what happens to them. What are some of the negative thoughts that go through their head? What happens to them physically? What are the emotions that tend to trigger the suicidality? Um, what are some of the destructive behaviors that they get into, like maybe uh, substance use or isolation. Right. And then we map out coping strategies. So how to keep themselves safe and, uh, and ride out the storm, uh, which could include another way of looking at the situation, um, getting, you know, calling out, reaching, to, reaching out to a friend, getting some support, uh, maybe exercise, lots of different options. And it's going to be different for everybody. So we, we work through that together. Then they name two people that they would be willing to share their safety plan with and mm -hmm. say specifically what they want that person to do. So, you know, maybe if it's their mom, they might want their mom to remind them of their coping strategies or maybe take them to the hospital. So there, there can be some different options that they get to decide. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, if, 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 if you're feeling a certain way, you have probably an idea of what you think will help you. And, right. Uh, and it's nice to tell other people what that is because oftentimes people want to help, but they don't know what it is that you'd, they'd like that you would like them to do for you. Yeah. And I think it's important that this person um, who maybe has these suicidal thoughts, that they're the person helping create the safety plan. Um, oh, yeah. Because that it's way simple. it's individualized and, and then it feels more, um, yeah, just like personalized. Exactly. So then, you know, they, the, the thing is, they're, the, they're really playing an important role in making it work. They're, that's their responsibility is maybe to follow the plan or to, you know, take medication that's prescribed. They'll also say in that plan, what is their responsibility to make it work? Um, it's not that they can just hope other people are going to recognize that they're not doing well. It's bringing back some of that ownership that I'm not, I'm not doing well. And, and I need to let people know where I need to do some things to make this situation better. Right. So it's very collaborative, but you know, just like in a fire, everybody has their role to play and it's the same with suicide safety planning. Uh, and then the final thing that we look at is um, what would be, you know, two or three key coping strategies that they'd want to pay attention to. So, you know, I've had people who are gamers and uh, they'll say, well, I really need to make sure that I'm, I'm in bed at a reasonable time. I need to make sure I get my sleep or somebody else will say, I really need to focus on looking at a positive in the situation, or I really need to commit to eating the three meals a day. So there's options they can choose from and they prioritize two or three that they really want to pay attention to. Mm. And then they decide where are they going to store it? Because you have to have your safety plan stored somewhere so you can refer to it and update it as needed. Yeah. And also, um, you know, how often are you going to review it? Any emergency plan that you have doesn't just get made and then shelved. You have your periods to review it to make sure that uh, it's fresh in your mind of what you're looking for and what to do, and that you can update it if there's any gaps. For yeah. sure. So it's, it's really supportive and collaborative process. And the feedback, once those plans are developed, is people will say, I feel relieved yeah. I feel like I got this now and I have an idea of what to do. Because yeah. uh, if you say, you know, don't kill yourself, well, that's one thing. But if you don't know what you're going to do instead when you're so distressed, it makes it really difficult. So this really lays out a plan. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
And I even liked how you mentioned kind of like helping the person identify or having the person identify coping strategies. And I feel that that goes for anyone, whether um, you are suicidal or not. Um, I think for everyone, it would be important to establish coping strategies, um, especially right now being in a pandemic and just knowing um, some days I will feel distressed, but having kind of like in your back pocket, a list of coping strategies um, that you know make you feel better. So whether that be um, exercise or eating well or going for a walk or calling someone, um, I feel that can help people get through these uncertain times. Yeah. And another really great coping strategy, you know, it doesn't take a lot of effort to do it, but it's really focusing on what are you grateful for? Mm. Uh, or, you know, even smiling, because if you smile at somebody else, they're going to smile back. And we know that just a smile can even change some of your brain chemistry. So uh, wow. if you don't feel like smiling, force yourself to do it anyways. Yeah, it can be a little bit of a boost to your mood. But gratitude can be pretty simple. Uh, when we're when we're uh, when our mental health is challenged, as I said, you're kind of geared to look more for the negatives. Yeah. But if you if you pay attention to some of those many, many things that we take for granted, it can help to change the perspective. <laughs> I'll never forget one day uh, uh, I went, I had a sh- I went to have a shower and our hot water tank stopped working. Oh no. And I thought, okay, every day I have a shower and I never really pause to think how grateful I am for hot water. Yeah. But I can tell you that day, I thought I am really grateful for hot water. Yeah. And so even the little things that we take for granted. Yeah, exactly. For sure. No, that's a great idea. And I definitely have noticed whenever I'm feeling a bit more agitated or distressed or anxious, um, just like you said, writing down a couple of things I'm grateful for really helps um, put things in perspective and calm me down. And, and just like you were talking about routine, Um, That's something I'm working on is kind of every day, just jotting down in the morning, just a couple of things that I'm grateful for. Um, And I definitely, I'm starting to see kind of the impact on that on my own mental health. If you think of it a little bit, like it's very clear that if you want a muscle to get stronger, you have to exercise it that we, we get that concept, but it's, pretty same for the brain. So if you want certain pathways in your brain strengthened, um, you know, if you play ringette or hockey, or if you play the piano, you're going to have to practice to get those brain waves, those brain pathways strengthened. Well, it's the same for gratitude and positive thinking that uh, practicing it is going to make that come a little bit easier to people uh, because you put the time and effort into it. And then your brain adapts to that. For sure. Well, Teresa, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You are a wealth of knowledge. And I think that there's a lot of different, even just like tips and tricks um, for everyone to take out of this um, conversation. And so thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome, Kate. Thanks again for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode of QHO on Air. This was the first of our two-part mini-series on mental health. Join us next time as I sit down with three amazing volunteers from the Peer Support Centre at Queen's University. I hope you have a great rest of your day.